Let's hear the word of the Lord together. A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, starting with verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The word of the Lord. A reading from the second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, starting with verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal joy. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The word of the Lord. The Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 17, starting with verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to, to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. All right, so I had an interesting weekend um, this weekend, and uh, I had our family went to um, our family went uh, camping 
And it was really fun. We had a good time camping, but we didn't really go camping. So we, we went there and got our tent out and saw that our tent was broken. So we had to pivot and figure out what we were going to do. There is a lodge, which is basically a nice hotel, like a mile away. <laughs> and so our family ended up camping but staying in the hotel, which was fine. It was really nice and enjoyed it. And it was good with the baby to be there and stuff. And then on the way back, I, had, I learned a little bit of a lesson. So I typically save the printing of the liturgy till like late Friday night or early Saturday morning and getting all that last stuff compiled. And this time I had written, done all the research for the sermon, but I was gonna still had to put some things together and compile a few things and stuff. And, and so I was gonna do it on the way back. It was two hours away. So we started driving and I opened up my computer and it didn't turn on, but I had plugged it into the car. So I assumed that's just why it won't turn on. It's just dead, really dead. And I had a headache and like, okay, I'll worry about it when I get home. So we got home. We were supposed to get home about six, but delay after delay after delay, we ended up getting settled and home like eight or nine o'clock. And I'm settled in, I'm ready to get everything done and get it printed and computer is still not turning on. <laughs> and it's just completely dead. And I'm reading all the message boards of what to do. And I think everything is fried. I think it's gone. So I am trying to get it going. Well, then I had to figure out how to get the liturgy on my iPad or my iPhone copying, pasting from old emails, templates that I could put in and do the whole thing. Finally got it all done. I'm happy with how it turned out. Downloaded an app on my phone to print from and all that stuff. So anyway, it's been an interesting, I was up till like 1.45 trying to figure that out last night. So I'm here and I'm here to preach this morning. I don't typically share about my personal <laughs> issues, but today was one of those days and God's grace meets us here. So a few passages I want to look at today. First of all, I think so much of the Christian life is about acknowledging our source, who runs our lives and who runs the world. Rowan Williams writes of the Christian life, Christian belief is really about knowing who and what to trust. And all three of our readings today challenge us to trust in various seasons of our life, seasons of exile and uncertainty and loss times where everything around us seems like it's pushing us away from trust, and even in times where we've experienced God's blessing and God's goodness, and we have the opportunity to respond with gratefulness. Our Jeremiah reading is so great. It's part of a letter addressed to exiles in Babylon. We looked last week at, and we followed this story of exile and, you know, Jeremiah warns the people a few weeks ago, hey, exile's coming. You got to be ready. You know, get ready for this exile. It's going to happen. Lamentations last week is about lamenting. Exile's happened. Jerusalem has been destroyed and we've been sent away. And here we're given the instructions to the exiles who are in Babylon. God had really formed these people by a land. So they were a people who had been set free from Egypt sent to the promised land, that's who they were, the set free people and the people who were given a land. And so after the siege of Jerusalem, they're forced, they're shipped 700 miles to their new home and they leave everything behind, therefore leaving their identity behind. And now after they've been sitting around for a while, they've been waiting to be returned to the promised land, hey, God's gonna set us free, he's gonna send us back to the promised land and their rightful place as an empire, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, not so fast. This is your home now. The exiles are encouraged. Okay, where you are, build houses, plant gardens, marry, have children, 
Plan marriages for your children. Settle down in Babylon. And then finally, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is shocking because ordinarily the people would pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Maybe you've heard this before, like um, that's a common phrase among people in Israel. Pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's been going on for millennia now, that prayer. But for now, they're to put that aside. They're to pray for the peace of Babylon because their peace is tied up with Babylon's peace. So in other words, they're not supposed to think of themselves as prisoners of war. They're not supposed to think of themselves any longer as just temporarily there and then they'll one day be set free. They're not just doing time. People who are doing time are just counting down the days until they're released. But no, that's not to be their only hope and goal anymore. The people of God are to settle down because the action's in Babylon. They're not just accidentally victims of bad luck. God has sent them there deliberately. And the prophet says they're to be there for a long time. They need to stop yearning for Jerusalem and step into their new lives. Exile is a traumatic thing. It's a disorienting thing because everything that's familiar is gone. Such an event can cause the people who are exiled to feel worthless and feel meaningless. All of us have experienced this on some level. So psychologists tell us that, some psychologists will say that every part of life is a response to trauma some trauma that we've experienced. Well, what if you've had no trauma in your life? Well, psychologists say the first trauma everybody experiences is birth. Birth is a trauma. It's a disorienting event. But not only birth, we go to school, which is new. It's disorienting. We enter into the workforce. That's a new thing, right? All of these are unfamiliar experiences. We also all know what it's like to be a stranger somewhere. We often find ourselves in places we don't want to be. We have feelings of dislocation. And yet this strangeness, even when it's awful, can open up new opportunities for us. There can be a sense of freedom when our minds are open to new possibilities. So the children of Israel had spent their time wallowing in self-pity. They're bitter. They're struggling. They had religious leaders who were with them. And the religious leaders, what they would end up doing is saying, we had a dream that God is going to set us free from exile. Well, the prophet wants us to know that that's wrong. <laughs> like all of their leaders that have had these dreams, they're just in denial, basically. These dreams are destructive because they denied their exilic state and they pretended it would all be over soon. Why do we live in denial? Because if we live in denial of our circumstances, we don't have to really develop a deep, deep life where we are. We can just pretend it doesn't exist. They wouldn't need to learn business practices in their new place. They wouldn't need to be disciplined with marriage and family. They wouldn't need to plant gardens. If you're in denial and you think it's all going to be over soon, then why would you do any of that stuff? They think once we get back to Jerusalem, that's when we can really settle down. Once we accomplish this thing or we find the right place, we can settle down. So many of us live our lives in denial of our trauma or of the change that we've experienced in our life and how disorienting it is. But the call of God is to be honest with where we are, to be like, hey, we're in a new place and that might be uncomfortable and it's difficult and it may even be bad. It may need to be something that needs to be lamented. But it's after we do that that we can figure out, okay, what does life look like in this place? 
This week, I was faced with some circumstances um, where I had to remember some leadership trauma that I experienced years ago. Um, I had some moments as a young minister. It's now been, you know, 15 years, 14 years, something like that, where I stood up for some things that I really believed in at the time, felt really strongly about, and was just kind of roundly rejected for them and really shut down for some of these things. And I took a really strong stand. And these are things that they're like 10, 15 years ago. They're silly. They're things should, should be in my rear view mirror. And I should have moved on to greater levels of wisdom. They shouldn't define me anymore. So in sometimes I, in some points in my life, I live in denial. Where I go, yeah, that all is in the past. That stuff didn't really happen. But this week, some friends helped me to see that they still impact me, some of these, these events that I've experienced. So I struggle even today sometimes as a leader to firmly express my own opinions with confidence because of these things. And I'm working on it. I'm trying to get in touch with it and work on it. Living in denial of our pain or what we've experienced is never the way through because it keeps us from fully setting out to the world that's in front of us. The call of God's people in exile in Babylon is to embrace everyday stuff to realize God is with them in ordinary things. That's why it's such a practical verse. Like, like get married, settle down, plant gardens, have your, your children go ahead and get married. They're becoming attentive to God in this place, knowing that God's not dependent on place. God can work in whatever situations we find ourselves in. So God can work in strange situations. God can work in, in familiar situations. God is with us. Luce, I thought maybe you were going to join us for a minute. You're welcome to join us if you want. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Israel is to understand, too, that exile even, this strange place, may be part of their mission. So the mission of the Israelites in the Old Testament, if we remember, is Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing to all people. All right? All the nations were drawn to Israel. Think about the temple is a house of prayer for all nations. Here, Israel is scattered to the nations, and they're tempted to believe there is no way they could continue on in a foreign pagan land. Surely this is not God's will for them. And Jeremiah says, make homes and live in them. So don't sit around pining for the days of, of Jerusalem. Your lives are valuable now where you are. This is what you've been given, and you're called to live into it. He tells them to enter into the rhythms of the seasons. So learn about the economy and the climate and all of those kinds of things, because this is the place you live now. Take wives and have sons and daughters. These people are not beneath you, so don't think your neighbors are beneath you so you can't marry them or you can't give your kids in marriage to them. You can be responsible in relationships with them. Don't keep yourself isolated. Your neighbors are God's persons. Build trust and conversation and love. And then finally, seek the welfare of the city. Yes, the empire that, has, has, that you're under has always been described as your enemies. But your shalom, your peace, is tied up with theirs. When you seek their shalom, you will find yours. And this is not on their terms. It's on God's terms. So pray for them. Eugene Peterson says that exile or these periods of disorientation force a decision. Quote, will I focus my attention on what is wrong with the world and feel sorry for myself? Or will I focus my energies on how I can live at my best in this place I find myself? It is always easier to complain about problems 
than to engage in careers of virtue. Now, this isn't just realism, so it's not just saying, well, it is what it is, you know, everything's, you know, this is where I'm at, and so I'm kind of just stuck here. No, this is a mission. <laughs> the command bestows on this small, vulnerable community a large missional responsibility to bless the world, to pray for this entire empire's wholeness, for their neighbor's wholeness. But this isn't about going back to what's familiar, it's about what God is doing right now. In our second Timothy reading, Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Well, that seems like a good first verse. We're supposed to remember Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ is always the, uh, Jesus is always the best Sunday school answer to a question. So if you're in Sunday school and somebody says, hey, answer's a question, you don't know the answer, chances are good it's Jesus. But in case we think Paul's being Captain Obvious, his claims here are really subversive. So he's challenging these assumptions. He says three things in one sentence. He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. So this is a short summary of the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Each element is important. So first of all, we need to remember the specificity of Jesus Christ. Christians don't just believe in the possibility of resurrection. We don't just believe, hey, big things happen. No, we believe there's something specific about Jesus. Secondly, we do need to remember resurrection. So an event has happened that changes everything, right? It's completely different. It's not abstract or theoretical. Christ has risen from the dead. So this means Jesus is not just a good example, somebody who lived, or a good teacher. The resurrection is the hinge point of history, and everything changes in its light. And then third, we need to remember Jesus was a descendant from David. Why is that important? Well, it means that God is consistent. He's faithful to his people. He doesn't just have a people and then all of a sudden he goes, yeah, I'm going to give up on you and I'm going to create this Jesus guy. No, of course Jesus is not created. That would be heresy. But, but he doesn't like scratch and start over again. No, he says God is faithful to the same people and Jesus is a descendant of David. God remains faithful to his people. And their mission and identity have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we can recognize God is at work everywhere, even in the most unlikely places. In Babylon, under persecution, in Paul's case, in a prison cell. God is at work there, and he calls us to faithfulness there. Paul says that Jesus is the whole point why he's suffered, why he's in chains like a criminal. To paraphrase him, Paul is saying, even though I'm chained, the word of God is not changed. chained. The gospel can't be tied up. It can't be limited. God is at work even when it looks like we have no influence and we have no value in the world. God is working. And then Paul quotes this awesome, what we think was a first century hymn. It's really cool. If we died with him, he will also live. We will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. In other words, we are connected to God. When we're in Christ, we're connected to God, and God is consistent even when we mess up. Now notice, you guys are artists, and you'll appreciate this poetry here. There's three conditional couplets. So if we died with him, we will also live with him. Okay, that's conditional. So if we do this, then he'll do that. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. 
if we disown him, he will disown us. So those are conditional couplets, if then, right? Then there's a clause that's not conditional. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So notice, God's faithfulness has the final word here. There's three conditional couplets, so we have a role to play in this. It's important. But at the end, God's faithful. So even if we don't live up to it, God is faithful. He has the final word. Verse 13 says, God cannot disown himself. Well, what does that mean? Somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church has become the body of Christ. So we are, that's not just a fun metaphor. We are the body of Christ walking around in the world. (laughs) That's what we are. We are Christ's body. He's called us and chosen us. And if we're part of him, he will never disown us. Never. Because he can't disown himself. And then verse 14, Paul is concerned about quarreling over words. He says that does nothing, and it just ruins the people who listen. Now, this is one of those that we look at and we go, we don't know. This is like listening to half of a phone conversation where you hear one person's end and you don't hear the other end. Because we don't know what he's addressing. Like, who, what are his opponents saying? Some say that he might, there might be some opponents who claim that the resurrection was just a metaphor not a real idea. And so he's kind of saying, hey, be careful with your words that you play around with because you're acting like this isn't that big a deal. There may have been others who they disconnected the Jesus story from the story of Israel. So in the second century, particularly, there was this um, thing that emerged called Marcionism, which said that the Old Testament was created by one God and then there was a New Testament God who came along. Marcionism sounds like a small little heresy, but it actually had more churches at one point than there were Christian churches. It was a rival to Christianity. So he may be addressing, don't disconnect the Jesus story from the story of Israel. They need to stay together, all right? So then he says, he talks about he who correctly handles the word of truth. And this is a word for, you probably heard the King James rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's because the the word is about making a straight road or a path. It literally means to cut straight ahead or to lead or to build a road. Second century theologian Theodoret of Seir said, good teachers are like farmers who plow straight furrows, thus presenting the rule of scripture in a correct manner. All right, so this passage is a little opaque, but there's a few things we can take from this. God's revelation in Jesus is unique, it's real, and God doesn't give up on his people or his story. To be connected with God in Christ, has be, which has happened by the Spirit, in Christ by the Spirit, means that God will not give up on us. God's faithful. And then finally, we're supposed to remind as Christians and Christian leaders, all of you in this room are Christian leaders, <laughs> um, is that, that we are to take care of God's story in a way that trusts God's character. So we trust God's character. Okay, I want to look at our gospel reading and then we're, we're done here. But in our gospel reading, we hear these 10 men with leprosy, and they approach Jesus asking for mercy. Now, in this culture, if you had leprosy, you were considered ritually unclean, and you were cut off from temple worship. So the temple is the central place of healing and forgiveness. So to be cut off from the temple is to be cut off from the source of life. So with this likely came a a sense of social isolation and ostracism, If you had leprosy, it was like people weren't really supposed to be close to you. 
We can stretch that. There's some scholars recently that have shown us that leprosy was not quite as extreme as some preachers talk about. There were some ways where lepers were in, uh, people with leprosy were integrated into the community. But still, there was some level of stigma that was going on here. And Jesus is doing what the temple is unable to do. And he points out the hypocrisy of God's people. If we look back at the Jeremiah passage, think about the people of Israel were always a people who had been displaced. They had been originally displaced in Egypt, and then God set them free from slavery. They were outsiders. God heard their cry, and he set them free. And then in exile, they once again become foreigners. They become outsiders in a strange land. And then eventually, um, they are, um, well, they are set free in Jesus. So we see all of that that's kind of going on. Their identity as a people had been built on the fact they were outsiders. They were far off. And then God heard their cry and rescued them. And yet, in the first century, many of the leaders continue to marginalize people within their midst. They continue to marginalize the sick and the poor and the sinners and the foreigner. So, so much of Jesus' ministry is just telling the people, hey, you were the foreign cut-off people and God rescued you. Why are you doing this to other people? So in the Gospels, when Jesus heals those with leprosy and those who are crippled, he's healing their physical body, which is huge. It's amazing. But he's calling them back into God's presence and into the presence of God's community. So he's making a declaration over their lives. Now, at this time, there were various diseases that were included under the heading of leprosy. Today, we call leprosy um, Hansen's disease is what, is what we call it. And it's a very serious skin disorder, disorder with you know, limbs falling off and you know, different things like that, really serious. But this had a lot of different skin disorders under the heading of leprosy. So as happens with skin disorders, sometimes they would just disappear on their own. Sometimes they'd go away. So there was a mechanism in the law for what happens if somebody becomes clean and their leprosy is gone. So the men with leprosy are supposed to go to the priest, and then the priest would say, yeah, you're clean, or you're not clean. Well, here, the men with leprosy approach Jesus, and he gives them a simple command. Show yourselves to the priest. Why? Because the priest can determine whether you're clean or whether you're not clean. But Jesus is saying, show them, show yourself to the priest that you're clean. And they're looking at their skin, and they're going, we're not clean. <laughs> right? So he's asking them to trust in the results before it actually happens. Showing yourself to the priest would mean revealing a miracle that's happened, but they haven't seen the miracle yet. All he says is go to the priest. So in doing so, they're being called to trust in Jesus and trust that his word is greater than their situation. And as they go, they are made clean. One of these guys throws himself at Jesus's feet and he's in an odd position because he's a Samaritan, so he's a foreigner. That means he has a different temple, and he has a different priest than that of the Jews. So when Jesus says, show yourself to the priest, he would have a quandary. What is he supposed to do? Do I go to you guys' priest, or do I go to my priest? The story says, seeing he was clean, he praised God in a loud voice. So rather than going to either priest, he goes back to Jesus, recognizing that the hope that he has for redemption is found not in either priest, but in this guy, Jesus. The story tells us something about gratefulness. This guy is the only one who returns to Jesus with gratefulness. We work um, with our kids and parent, other parents that I know do this uh, on saying thank you 
So one of the first things I hope Betty learns as she's talking is when somebody gives her something, she says, thank you, right? It's polite. It's a nice thing to do. In fact, Lucy, we would give her something and she'd start going, dee-doo, and that was thank you for a long time until she was able to learn it. Why do we teach them that? On one level, it's just politeness, like live in the world. This is what we do. We say please and thank you. But on a deeper level, it's knowing that gratitude does something in us. It changes us. It helps us to see life as a gift. We're not entitled to every day. Every day is a blessing. Every gift is a blessing. So gratitude has done something for this man. It's an expression of faith because he says, this is my source. So of course I'm going to thank him. It leads to his ultimate healing. But this guy's a Samaritan. He's a foreigner. And if you know the story, there was all this animosity between Jews and Samaritans. They were enemies. And there are multiple moments where Jesus stands up in his teaching and the good guy in his stories or the good guys in his encounters are Samaritans. So there's a Samaritan woman at a well that Jesus speaks to. There's the story of the good Samaritan. We see it several times in his ministry. So Jesus' ministry is crossing ethnic boundaries. We'll see this ultimately in the book of Acts, where some of the leaders, um, where, where some of the, uh, where Samaritans are actually fully brought into the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus points out that where some of God's people and some of God's leaders are unwilling to see God's work in him, in Jesus, the nations are able to thank him. The outsiders, the foreigners are able to acknowledge his good, goodness. So I think part of the lesson here is we must be careful when we find ourselves too confident about who are the insiders and who are the outsiders. When we feel like we know all the places where God works and all the places where he's absent. There are so many people who are able to see the goodness of God in ways that we would never expect. In this story, we hear that Jesus is more powerful than any brokenness. There is nothing too far or too unclean for his grace. And the last thing on this reading is all 10 men are cleansed. That's what verse 17 tells us. All 10 men are are cleansed. You know, Jesus sends them on their way and they're all cleansed of their leprosy. But one at the end, Jesus says, your faith has made you well or has saved you. And this is somehow because of his gratefulness, somehow because of his faith. Well, what's the difference between being cleansed and being made well? Like, how are they different things? Some will say, well, this man, actually, his soul is saved. So they make kind of a distinction between the spiritual and the physical. But I don't think we see that in this culture. They didn't really tend to separate physical things from spiritual things. It may be clear that this man's faith has allowed for a more holistic restoration of his life. The other men, they don't have leprosy anymore, and that's wonderful, and that's to be celebrated. But this man's gratefulness allowed him to be whole or to be saved in a way that's different, that's a different dimension. Likewise, gratefulness has a powerful effect on the life of a Christian. Gratefulness is subversive. When we name and give thanks for the gifts we've received, and we say, that's from God, when we acknowledge the source, it reorients our lives in the direction of God's rescue in every part of our life. To point back to last week's gospel reading, faith has the power to transport, transplant a mulberry bush into the ocean. It has the power also to heal leprosy. 
Like the disciples in last week's reading, we must remember that faith is just trust in God. It's not something we have to get more of or to muster up. It is God who empowers us to forgive, and it is God who heals. And that's what this man does. He simply trusts in his source and who God is. So our prayer for us this week, my prayer, is that God would open our eyes to see him at work in places that seem unfamiliar to us, foreign places, places that we hoped would be a temporary season in our life that turns out to be a place of settling, flourishing, and prayer. And in the seemingly unlikely people who lead us by their faith and thankfulness. God is at work in the painful times, in the boring times, in the disorienting seasons. In fact, St. John of the Cross seemed to believe that it's those times that we don't feel God at all, that God is most at work because we have to trust in him. There is no place that's foreign to Christ. Likewise, there are no people too far away from him. There's nothing too unclean to outweigh his healing touch. May this realization move us towards gratitude. When we're sick, may we acknowledge the pain of sickness while also recognizing God's presence to know the community that surrounds us in our sickness. When money is tight, may we recognize God's work in providing our daily bread. When business is not booming, may we recognize God's work in redirecting our attention away from obsession with worldly success towards the things that last. In tragedy, may we fully lament and know that God is with us. May we see our neighbors and our neighborhoods in new lights. The people who surround us are created in the image of God, and God is already at work in their midst. And in the end, may we acknowledge the source of all that is good and the one who desires our good. Amen.